Okay. I want to start today's sermon with a picture. Um, it's not the greatest picture, not the greatest quality. If this was taken in these, these days, digital days, we probably would have deleted it. But uh, what you see here is a picture that was taken in Kilbert Provincial Park in July of 1996. And um, it was a camping trip uh, we took with some friends of ours from university. If you look closely in there and you zoom in, you'll see a guy in a red and white hat. That's me. And the reason I'm showing you this picture is it's the only one of me at this camping trip. But the real reason I want to show you this picture is that that picture is a picture of me falling in love. And so it doesn't may not look like that, but that's what it is. And uh, if you look a little bit closer on my shoulder, you'll see another face, and that is Carol, uh, the person that I was falling in love with. <laughs> um, you know, so I didn't know Carol very well. I'd only met her a few times before this trip. Uh, I had driven, actually drove up with her on the Friday afternoon and found her to be quite annoying personality. Everything that I said, she seemed to challenge me. I would say some profound thing, and she would say, really? And, uh, you know, I'd be like, what is wrong with this girl? I actually complained to one of my friends on the Saturday morning about her. She also listened to music that I didn't like, DC Talk and Newsboys, for any of you who are, know the Christian music scene. And, hey, got one fan. <laughs> Well, that wasn't my scene, I didn't like it, so I didn't like her music and she didn't like mine. But as you see, this picture here is Saturday night, and uh, there's a guy sitting in the front there, um, I won't mention his name, but at one point during the, just a few minutes before this picture was taken, I had seen her off walking with this guy and talking to him, or sitting actually, and uh, this pang of jealousy came over me. I was like, why is she sitting talking to that guy? Why isn't she talking to me? Right? And it was at that moment that I knew, okay, there's something going on with this, right? And so on the Sunday afternoon driving home, we stopped for lunch. I remember sitting beside her, and it was very clear to me that I had something for this girl, right? That, um, that I was falling for her. Um, so the rest of the summer, we would spend time with each other uh, periodically as a group. And by uh, September 21st, we were dating. That was the official beginning of our dating. The reason I know that is because I went to see Pearl Jam on September, 24th, uh, September 14th, one week before. So I was always, always able to keep that date in mind. But you can switch the slide, Albert. Uh, during that time, I was smitten. Um, you know, I, there were some differences that we noticed right away as we began to date, but those things didn't seem to mind, didn't seem to matter. Uh, this was first love. This was the early days. You know, I thought about her all the time. Uh, I would talk to her, to anybody who would listen. She gave me a picture of her, her and her brother. She liked the picture of her, so she gave it to me, but her brother was added on. So I would show that picture to people, put her, my thumb on top of the picture of her, his face and show her. And people thought I was crazy. Like, why are you showing me a picture of your girlfriend and her brother? <laughs> right? uh, I didn't care. I was in love, and... Uh, you know, I was just head over heels, and so I would talk to her, anybody who would listen to me about her. Um, I'd also put up with that little brother every time I went to her house. I would spend at least half an hour hanging out with him uh, before I would get to spend time with Carol. And I would rework my schedule to try to call her. If I was out at night, there was a certain time. Her parents worked shifts, so she had to, I had to call before a certain time at night. So I would do everything in my power to be able to call her before the, you know, because they didn't want the phone ringing after waking people up. Um, so I would do all those things. I would drive in through snowstorms to see her, all of that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, the police have a song called Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. That was the truth. That was a profound truth for me at the time. 
And uh, most of you probably know these feelings and have probably gone through it or felt them to some extent. Some of you have probably done crazier things than what I've mentioned today. But we, also, we all know what it looks like to be in love, to be newly in love. You know, there's a devotion to the person, a desire to please that person. We give them the best of what we've got. We clean up, we dress up, we spend our money on them, we give them our time, and we talk about them to our friends and other people. But I think at the core of this excitement of new life is almost this disbelief, you know, that someone can love you. No matter how confident you might seem, all of us, I think, are keenly aware of the reasons why somebody might not love you. Uh, so it is wonderful when you first meet somebody to be loved, and it's wonderful to love. But we also know, if you've been in a long-term relationship, that those kind of feelings don't last forever, at least at that intensity. Over time, things kind of slow down, things get in the way, and uh, it's not quite the same. So today we're going to look at this passage, as Charlotte has read for us, uh, from Revelations 2. We're looking at the church in Ephesus. And Jesus speaking to them through John, as recorded in in Revelation there. Um, He challenges the Ephesians. He recognizes all the good things that they've done, but in spite of that, he says they had forsaken their first love. So I think this truth is as applicable today as it was in the first century. And uh, I think what we can tell by it is that Jesus has high ex- relationship expectations. He is jealous for our affections. But it also tells us that love is essential for the mission of the church. And that might seem like an obvious point, and it is an obvious point. But the Ephesians got it wrong, and oftentimes we get it wrong too. So as we approach this text today, I want to ask four questions. And you'll, so you'll hear them. The first one is, what kind of love does God want from his church? So you look at verses 2, two to 4. Um, I actually want to start a different way. Instead of asking what he does want, I want to ask what he doesn't want. <laughs> and I think we see that here in, uh, in verse 2 to 4. I'll start by saying this. Our love for God cannot be summed up in the things that we do for him. Right. Let's look at what they were doing here in, in the Ephesian church. They were commended here for their hard work, their perseverance. They didn't tolerate wickedness. They tested the teachers. They endured hardships and persecution, right? And they did not grow weary of doing it. This was a committed church. They were willing to be persecuted for the truth. I'll tell you one thing. You're not going to be persecuted for telling people things they want to hear. You're only going to be persecuted when you tell them things they don't like. Right? These people were sticking their necks out for God. That's the kind of church here. However, when we come to verse 4, you'll see this key word, yet. Some translations, it's nevertheless. And that word, yet, is kind of like but. It negates everything that came before it. Right? It negates all their working and striving. They had done all these things, yet something was missing. They had forsaken their first love. So what's missing? What were they, what's the problem? Um, Gary Chapman wrote a book called Love is a Verb. You've probably heard that phrase, love in action. You know, we want to, work, we want to be working for God, showing Him through that. In relationships, we'll often say, you know, don't say I love you. Tell me, show me you love me. Don't tell me you love me. The proof is in the pudding. Um, so what's going on here then? They were doing all these wonderful things. They seem to be demonstrate love. But he's saying they were missing that love. They had forsaken their love. So I want to take a look first at what they mean by love. 
What does Jesus mean by love here? And the word used here is agape. If you're from my generation, that was probably the first Greek word you ever heard. Agape land. Anybody know agape land here? One person who's not part of my two, who aren't part of my generation. <laughs> okay. Anyways, agape is a word for love. And it's a word of uh, typically God's love for us. But in this context, evidently, it's the Ephesians who are doing the loving. And it's the Ephesians' love for God, I would say. But it's also, I think, their love for other believers and for the world around them. I think that this word agape, the kind of love that they had forsaken, was a love for, for God, for others, and for the church. First John 4 tells us that love is from God, and that any, everyone who loves has been born of God. So we know from that that God initiates love, all love comes from him, and that the result of that love is that we share it with the people around us. I think this is further illustrated in Matthew 22 when Jesus is asked about the great, what's the greatest commandment. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? They asked him for one great commandment, he gave them two. <laughs> it shows you that that second one is important too. Right? But they go together. Love of God is primary. But the others flow out of this love. I think love of God brings um, perspective on our lives, brings gratitude, and it helps us to love others and be motivated to love others. An interesting point here is that I think all the love we have for God, we can love him with our whole being, and that won't take away from the love that we have for our neighbors, the world around us, right? Love for God enhances all of our other loves. So I hope that gives you a kind of a picture of the kind of love that they were looking God, God's looking for. The Ephesians are lacking this kind of love. But there's also this word first. They've forsaken the love they had at first. And there's two keys to understanding this word. The first is time, right? Understanding the love we had at the beginning. You know, I started with explaining my love for Carol at the beginning of our relationship, right? Those are things that you kind of, there's a certain passion and a certain heightened um, sense of love that you have when you first start to love someone. And I think if we think back on our relationship with Christ when we were first new Christians, uh, there's a passion for scripture, passion for prayer, desire to serve. There's just an excitement about it. We want to be with other believers, people who encourage us and share our faith. And we want to share our faith with the world around us. That's what it's like to be in love with Jesus at first. But there's also a question of priority involved in this as well. Like, what do you love the most? So there's the time, the thing you loved at the beginning, but there's also what do you love first? What ranks number one? Pastor Richard, a few weeks ago, spoke about hating your parents. He spoke on that passage. And he said the word for hate is actually a comparative word. Right? It doesn't mean you hate your parents. That's not what Jesus was saying there. He's saying you don't love them as much as others. Right? And I think this word here for love is the same. Do you, what do you love the most? What do you love first means what do you love the most? Um, if you look back at the first commandment, you'll see that that's true, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's it. God wants his love to be prior, primarily for him. That's the kind of love he's looking for. Any good counselor would agree that for a healthy marriage to work, uh, your partner has to be your priority. There's lots of things that can come and compete for your attention. Your career, your kids, your hobbies, your chores, uh, families and friends, all sorts of things. 
But your spouse should be first in all those earthly relationships. That's what God wants too. So I think Jesus here is asking for a bit of both. You know, they had forsaken or abandoned the love they had at both at first, right? They had loved him. There's a certain energy that they had. He wants them to return to that earlier time where they were giving him priority. So just as he's asking them to return to, to their first love, I think uh, we can find a great example of what that first love might look like in Acts 2. As we look at the early church. This might shed some light on what they were missing. I want to read this. Most of you will know this passage, but I'll read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is an amazing picture of the early church. right? And um, as you read it, you can't help but, but think these people were filled with a love for God. Right? And I think that's why we find it so inspiring and people talk about it all the time. Acts 2 Church, we hear it all the time. What do we see there? They were sharing. They were generous with themselves, with their time, with their material. They listened to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to it. They met regularly. They, were, they had glad and sincere hearts. And they praised God. And as a result of all that, they grew. Now, the Acts 2 church was far from perfect, the early church there. If you continue to read in Acts, you'll find that out pretty quickly. Um, but they had a love for God that made them like, incredibly effective in reaching the world around them. We see here that new believers, I think they had a gratitude for the love God had shown to them. They knew they were undeserving recipients of his grace. And with hearts filled to overflowing with that sentiment, they responded with acts of love. I think in order for the Ephesians to return to that, God's saying, you know, think about these things and return to what, you, what you've done and be like this again. Don't forget it. So that's the first question. What kind of love is God looking for? And I think uh, Acts 2 provides a great answer for that. The second question is, what caused them to forsake or abandon his love? So what caused the Ephesians to forsake this love? You know, as I was thinking about that question, I couldn't help but think about uh, this song. I always think about songs and words come to mind. Ask my family, it drives them crazy. Um, but the song that came to mind was Gordon Lightfoot. Anybody know Gordon Lightfoot here? You got one, you got two. Okay, you got a handful here. If you could read my mind, if you know that song. It's a depressing song my parents used to make me listen to when I was a youngster in New Guinea. Um, but there's a climax of that song, and it says this, I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone, and I just can't get it back. So I was thinking about forsaking our loves and losing loves. That song played in my head, and I was singing it around the house all for a long time. <laughs> but as you think about that, um, I don't know, uh, hold on. <laughs> what causes us to forget or to abandon our love? We don't know. We know, though, when something's missing from our earthly relationships. We know when something's gone wrong when there's something gone. And I looked up this relationship expert, uh, and she's talking about long-term relationships and how they go wrong. She says they don't usually happen with a quick break. Usually it's a slow erosion. 
She says this, It's more like a subtle disconnect that grows to an ever-widening chasm of discontent. There just isn't the same sense of intimacy you once shared. And it's from that place of discontentment that negative narratives begin to unfold. Um, I think that speaks, that's, that's uh, similar to what's going on here, right? But in our relationships, we know when things happen. It's over time. People feel unappreciated. They feel taken for granted. They get busy. They forget to put the time and the energy they need to into the relationships. Whatever the case is, whatever the reason is your relationship falls apart, eventually, or starts to drift, and maybe not fall apart, but starts to, to drift, maybe the reason for that is, um, sorry, the, the, what happens at the end of all of that is that you end up finding yourself missing something. Something's gone wrong, and you know that there's something that's not there. You could be going through all the, all the you know, motions of life. People around you might think you have a healthy relationship, but you know there's something gone. There's missing passion. Maybe you're walking around, you're just roommates. <laughs> you know, uh, you're on autopilot. You can get stuck in the predictable, into the safe routines, just going through the motions, but you forget why you're doing it. And I think this, this can look the same in our relationship with God. I think the forsaking happens over time. There's a subtle disconnect that grows into a widening chasm. I think an example of this uh, is in First Kings. It's an example of Solomon. Yeah, he was the wisest man in all history. You know, had great wealth and power and built the temples. He was this wonderful, renowned guy. He didn't make a quick and deliberate decision to turn, turn his back on God. It was a slow process. He took on foreign women as his wives, went going against God's law. Took on 700 wives and 300 concubines. Right? That there tells you it was a slow process. Right? <laughs> but they slowly turned their hearts away from him. He started towards their gods. And despite warnings, he didn't turn around, right? When he fell away, he lost the blessing of God. And I think that's kind of what's happening in the church in Ephesus. We look a little bit on their history. In Paul's letter to the church, Ephesians 1, you see that he was thankful because of their faith in Jesus and the love towards all the saints. So we see right there that they had a love for others, love for the saints. They were faithful to Christ. In Acts 20, you know, we see Paul interacting with them again, and he predicts that they will be attacked by false doctrines. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, that was the reality that they were living in. They were living in persecution. They were living amidst false doctrines. And then we come to Revelation again, verses 2 and 3 and 6. Right? They came, and this is what they were living in. Right? They had forsaken their love, but they're still dealing with those things. Paul was right. Those false doctrines came, the persecution did come. Right? They, but they had lost their love. Somewhere along the way, they went off course. Right? He still says their hard work, their perseverance, their, hard, their enduring of hardships, they never grew weary. But in spite of all of those things, right? They had lost their love. I think in their battle for doctrinal purity, you know, the struggle against persecution, I think that they had forgotten what they were fighting for. They had forgotten their mission. I think they forgot to love. And I think as we read this as a you know, Western church in 2021, um, I think we can misunderstand this. And I think many have. 
thinking that the answer to it is, oh, we just need to love more. You know, I think when we go that way, which you know, it's, it's, we've seen it all the time, there's an overemphasis on love and grace and an you know ignoring of doctrine. Um, yeah, but Jesus commands commends their pursuit of doctrine and purity. He's not asking them to get rid of that. I think the buried lead of this passage is that you can't have one without the other. Grace and love go hand in hand with truth and obedience. Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, "If you love me, obey my commandments." So right there, obedience to God's law and love are are connected. Recently, I've been reading a book by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. And I think he provides a helpful analogy of DNA. And I want to put a picture up here of uh, the double helix. Most of you have probably seen this before. But I just want to read what he says. DNA's double helix is perfect balance at life's core. Two strands of DNA wrap around each other, an axis of symmetry. Those two strands run in opposite directions, providing perfect correction for each other. Grace and truth are spiritual DNA, the building blocks of Christ-centered living. These complementary strands create flawless spiritual balance and stability. Though the strands run opposite directions, they correspond perfectly. Without both strands, we cannot properly function. Without both strands, we cannot properly function. Grace and truth. Grace and truth are the spiritual DNA of what it, the building blocks of what it's like to be like Christ. Right? Love for God is wrapped up in the truth, upholding the truth, pursuing the truth, and keeping others accountable to the truth. John 1 describes Jesus as coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. The key to being Christ-like is to have, find the balance of those two things. This is a hard balance to find. right? We have on one hand our love churches, the liberal churches we'll call them, right? They can become too tolerant, afraid to correct sin, never wanting to offend. They lower the bar so much, and they water down the message that it becomes irrelevant. It has no power and cannot provide meaningful answers for people, so it becomes ineffective. On the other hand, we have the truth churches. We call them the ultra-conservative. Ultra they can become focused on right and wrong and legalities. Right? Spurgeon sums it up like this. When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry. If we overemphasize the striving for purity and sound doctrine, but forget the part that makes it so wonderful, the love of Jesus, then we die. As a church, we become a corpse. This is the direction the Ephesians had evidently taken. Right? Jesus is challenging them to find that balance. They wanted to be effective in his kingdom, they would need to do that. So we found, look first here, we found the, the first question is, what kind of love is God looking for? The second question is, what, causes, what caused the Ephesians to forsake it? And the third question is this, how do we get it back? Right? And I want to offer some practical advice here. Going back to my, uh, my relationship expert, she said, cultivating a relationship is a choice. And remaining committed and attentive to your partner is a choice. That's what keeps love alive. Uh, that's some pretty common sense advice most of us probably could have given. But uh, <laughs> I think it lines up with what Jesus says here. We have a choice to make. And, he off and Jesus does that here in the passage. If we look at verse 5, he offers a path back to him. 
I'll just read it. Consider how far you have fallen. Sorry, lost my place. (laughs) Uh, Repent and do the things you did at first. Actually, in the translation we have up here, it says, remember how far you have fallen. So there's three things you can simply do. Remember, repent, and do. We have a choice to make there. If you're feeling that you're lacking love and passion in your own life, this is how it might work for us. So first we have to consider or to remember what? We're remembering who? We're remembering Jesus. We remember who we fell in love with. I think it's important that we use our Bibles for this on a regular basis. The first thing we do, we want to love God for who he is, right? And he's worthy of our love just for who he is. Revelations 4, just a couple chapters further on, says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here's a starting point, but there's so many more passages in Scripture we can look to to remind us of who God is, just how wonderful he is, and how worthy he is of our praise. The second thing we want to do is we want to remember what he's done for us. We love God for what he's done for us. And we can go back to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. And then Philippians 2, Jesus being in the very nature, God took on human form and became obedient to death on the cross. Those remind us of exactly what Jesus did, just how much he sacrificed. And there's plenty more like that as well. I think the third thing we can do to remember is that we can uh, love him for, and we can uh, tally up and, and record all the wonderful things that he does in our lives. Um, this is our personal experiences, right? How has God moved? Uh, this is why some people, and I think they're great, journals are great. I don't always do them. I haven't done them very much. But they do provide a record of how God's worked and moved and challenged you and helped you to grow, the answered prayers and all of that. And so those are the three things. We, remember, we praise God and remember who he was, who he is. We love him for that. We love him for what he's done. And we love him for what he's doing. So we remember now and then we repent. Repentance, it's pretty simple. Admit your failure and turn around. That's what that word means, turn around. We make the necessary changes in our lives and we rest in his grace. It's really simple. Right? We can't necessarily do this on our own. We need to rest in him. And then the third thing, do what you did before. They need to go back. He's asking the Ephesians to go back to what they were doing originally. We can do that in our own lives, think back to what it was like. We can look at Acts 2 as a model for what we can, how we can live our lives. And we spend time together, you know, reading our word, spending time with other believers, sharing our testimony with other people, giving him first place in our lives. Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, there's an adventure to be had with God, and sometimes we lose sight of that. Allowing God to work and move makes every day, even if it's mundane, uh, adventurous because we don't know where he's going to take us. And so I think that's the sad part sometimes when we lose that, lose sight of that love for God is that we, we lose sight of uh, the adventure that we can have with him as he works and moves, uses us in our lives. So maybe you're thinking like I do when I read these things, that, oh, this is too easy. It's so easy to say, um, but it's hard to do. And at some point I think you're right, but I don't think Jesus offers us a solution that's not possible. And if... 
If there's something that Jesus asks us to do, he gives us the power to do it. And we also know that we can't accomplish anything in this world on our own strength, anything for good. We're relying on his Holy Spirit. So I think when we ask God with sincere hearts to challenge us and to change us, that he'll do it, and he'll give us the power that we need to make the change. So here's my last question before we conclude. Why does it matter? (laughs) In verses 5 and 7, I want to look at those two verses. So what's at stake? What happens here? First, I want to look at what we lose. Jesus says in verse 5 that if they didn't repent, that he would remove the lampstand from its place. Right? He's saying he's going to remove his, his presence from them. If we don't maintain this love for God and this love for his truth, then we cease to represent him in the world. We cease, we cease to be the beacon of light in the world. And we forfeit our mission and we forfeit our calling. So that's what we lose. What we gain... In verse 7, we finish our mission. If we complete it, if we're faithful, we will be allowed to eat from the tree of life, to live with God in paradise, have eternal life with him, restored to perfect relationship with him. And that's an amazing promise to hold on to. That's where we're going. That's where we're pointing everybody else in the world to as well. We have this promise of heaven. We have this promise of uh, being reunited with God and reconciled with him. I entitled this message... uh, How is your love life? Because I think there's an obvious personal application here. And I hope you've been asking yourself these questions. You know, has my love grown cold? Have I given other things priority over knowing and serving God? Have I taken God's grace for granted? Have I lost the balance between grace and truth? These are the kinds of questions that we should be asking ourselves as we read the words of Jesus here. But this is a letter that's been written to a church. This is the church in Ephesus. So maybe I should have entitled this message, How is Our Love Life? (laughs) Um, There's a certain amount of personal responsibility in the church. There's also a collective problem. There's a collective application. And it's something that MCBC should take stock in collectively. Uh, Churches that have forsaken their first love might look good on the outside, They may have great programs, they may be well-financed, they may have great traditions, strong families. You know, we may have the right doctrine. We could even be facing persecution for Christ. But if our common purpose and uniting factor isn't the love of God, then what this passage tells us is it doesn't really matter. If we're not vigilant for pursuing God, striving to give him the place of preeminence that he deserves, then we will not be effective in the kingdom of God. And over time, the fruit of this will be evident in our ministries. And as a collective issue, we are responsible for each other. Um, we need to be willing to ask each other the tough questions, to be accountable to each other. And we need to make sure that what we're doing here is motivated by truth and grace. I think we're living in some pretty crazy times right now. I was thinking about this this week at the prayer meeting, just how overwhelmed I can get sometimes with the news. And, uh, you know, a year and a half of being locked up um, we've got issues, you know, the church has kind of been marginalized in our society for a number of years, and we, our voice seems to be silenced. Um, we've got issues around the world, like Dana prayed for uh, with Afghanistan. Who knows what the implications of that will be geopolitically? But we also, we do know that our Christian brothers and sisters are definitely struggling there. And so um, the question is, how do we respond to that? 
one thing that's not going to change is this. The world needs grace and truth. The world needs the gospel. So that's something that we hang on to. But I think as a church, we need to ask ourselves those questions. How are we going to, how do we move? How do we change? Because God's constantly moving. He wants to give new things to us. He wants to, to uh, you know, give us whatever we need to do to work and to be effective in ministering here in Mississauga and around the world. And so I think, um, I think we need to be asking ourselves those questions because these are definitely different times for sure, especially in my lifetime. But we're not the only Christians who have gone through difficult times, that's for sure. Um, Billy Graham gives a great example here. I want to conclude with this. He says this about the apostles. The men who followed him, Jesus, were unique in their generation. They turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. The world has never been the same. The early church was marked by a certain Christ-likeness. They were marked by love. It was infused by the Holy Spirit. This is what made them so effective in reaching out to the world around them, and it's what's going to make us effective in reaching out to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it continues to speak to us thousands of years later, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of this great mission. Lord, and I just pray you continue to be with us and transform us to make us like you day by day. I pray for conviction in our hearts, Lord, that our hearts would be turned upside, right side up so that we can ultimately impact the world with your grace and truth. Amen.